that as well. So, John chapter 4, woman at the well. Uh, last week we talked about uh, quite a bit, to actually last two weeks, how Jesus, in this interaction with this Samaritan woman at the well, he is shattering historical divisions. He is shattering social norms by engaging this broken woman, this woman at this well in this city of Sychar, Jacob's well. And so today I'd like to read our text. We're going to finish up this story and move on here. Verse 27 is where we'll start today. So if you have your Bible, uh, follow along. It says this, just then his disciples came back, right? He sent them into the city to buy food. And they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me, every, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two more days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's a big statement right there. 43, it says, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let's pray before we do anything else, all right? Father, again, we thank you and praise you. God, I, I thank you, God, that your presence is in this room, that your Holy Spirit is with us, that this word that we hold in our hands is the absolute truth. God, that it is you revealing you to us, that it is you revealing us to us. And so, God, today, I pray that our hearts would be open I pray that our hearts would be bare. I pray that our eyes would be opened. God, that we would see you. And God, that we would see the harvest before us. God, open our eyes to see spiritual things. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into this morning's text, I want to remind you of the few verses before our text today, okay? Just so that you know where we've been, just to remind you, refresh your memory, and then we'll get right into our text. It says in verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Remember, he's talking to the woman, and so he says, hey, go get your husband, and I'm going to tell you more about this living water. She's like, I got no husband, actually. And he's like, you're right. You've had five of them, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. 
And it's like, oh, dang it. Like, here's like a little bit of a curveball. And then she starts to get theological about it. Okay, you Jews say this. You got to worship in Jerusalem. You got to worship at the temple on this mount, right? And he says, the true worshipers here worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Dun, dun, dun. Right? That's like a huge moment. Have you ever noticed how Jesus, uh, in his ministry, he was rather slow to reveal himself? He was rather cryptic about him being the Messiah because his time had not come yet. His appointed hour had not come. And so he was choosing whom he would reveal himself to. And don't you find it just crazy, mind-blowing, baffling that he would choose to plainly make known who he is to a woman of Samaria. And everything that we've talked about, about a woman of Samaria over the last three weeks, right? That Jesus would look upon this woman and plainly say, I am he. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. This woman, right? Men don't talk to women, not in public, not in this ancient culture. Of Samaria, we talked about tainted, half-breeds, going back 700 plus years. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, as it says in verse 9. But yet Jesus, in his mercy and grace, met with this woman. Just showed, just plainly told her, I am the Messiah. So we pick up in our text today. The disciples come back. They were out getting food. Jesus sent them into the city. And they marvel that he is talking to a woman, right? Because he's shattering these cultural norms. But then no one said anything about it. If you notice that, no one, no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her, it says. You ever been in that spot where like there's something kind of like awkward happening, but no one says anything about it? It's like everybody knows like, oh my goodness, there's something going on here, but no one <laughs> says anything about it. So the woman, if you pick up our text here, she makes a declaration. It says, the woman left her water jar, verse 28. Went away into the town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? When they went out of the town and they were coming, then they went out of the town, they were coming to him. See, this woman, it's really kind of baffling. He reveals himself as the Christ and this woman is struck by him in such a way. This is the same woman who would go to the well alone in the heat of the day because of all the stuff that she did, right? She would carry those heavy water jars, those buckets in the middle of the noonday sun, not when, when all the other women were not there because of all the stuff she ever did. She doesn't want to hear the chatter from the women who despise her sinful past, all these failed marriages and a live-in boyfriend. And the thing about it is, is that Jesus knows. There's nothing hidden from him. We've been outed by Christ. There's no more hiding. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that we can live in freedom in the light of Jesus. I want to remind you 
of some verses that we covered in, in the last chapter, in John chapter 3. It's right out of um, uh, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I want you to get the picture here of light and darkness, of being exposed, of being outed by Jesus, being in his light. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This woman at the well has come into the light. Now everything fully exposed, no longer under the heavy burden of shame, but now in the light of Jesus She walks in freedom, and not just walks in freedom. She's running back into the city, declaring, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. All the shameful, sinful things I've ever done, come see this man who is the Messiah. Could he be? I think he's the Messiah. John 4, 30, our text says, and they went out of the town and were coming to him. So they heard the testimony of this woman, this woman with a past. They must have noticed quite a difference. Who's going to listen to her? Who's going to, who's going to come see, who's going to follow anything she says with such a dark and sinful past? But they must have seen something different. She used to avoid people, but now she's running back into the city proclaiming, come see a man. Could it be the Messiah? Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, I love that word. Meanwhile, changing scenes, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus sent them into the city to buy food, right? And they brought him back something, uh, something good to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? It's so funny. Because these are his disciples. These are the guys that are walking with him. And in John so far, we've seen a couple of instances where people have had very earthly eyes, where Jesus is trying to show or explain something very spiritual and very deep, but they've had very earthly eyes. Back in John chapter 2, right, when Jesus is cleansing the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they don't get it. They're like, what? This temple is speaking of his body. Nicodemus, right, he didn't get it. How can a man enter back into the womb, right? He doesn't understand. The woman at the well, where do you get this living water from? The well is deep and you've got nothing to draw with, right? Earthly eyes need their eyes open spiritually. But here we have Jesus' disciples, his own disciples, the ones who brought him some food. They're, they're, They're sitting there going, wait, he's got food already? Where did he get this food? Like, or like DoorDash, like ancient DoorDash kind of thing. Jesus is at the well. Some guy rolls up in a camel and hands him a bag of food. 
Jesus says his food, the thing that fills him, the thing that sustains him and satisfies him, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? To do the will of the one who sent him. Right? God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He came to do his will, to seek and save the lost. He came to accomplish his work. In his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Doing the will of the Father to seek and save the lost was greater sustenance and satisfaction than any food the disciples could have offered him. Any food that they could have showed up with, some morsel of bread, whatever it might be, his interaction with this broken Samaritan woman at the well to do the will and accomplish the work of the Father was far more sustaining. So much more satisfaction. And I... I'm always a little bit slow to preach the what would Jesus do sermon. Like, because like, Jesus interacts and does things because he's Jesus, because he's God, the Savior of the world. And, and I believe that Jesus' life is secondarily something to emulate. Like, his sinless life and the way that he interacted is so much bigger and deeper. It's like his sinless life is our righteousness, right? the way he interacted. But there is beautiful example to emulate in the life of Christ. And even in this case, I think that there is this beautiful thing for us to draw out of, to emulate, to go, okay, what is satisfying me? What is my food? What is it made of? What does it consist of? Why am I always so unsatisfied? Why is there always this ache and this longing in my life? It is the work of Christ. Jesus' food was to do the will of the Father, to seek and save the lost. He is the Savior of the world. You and I can't do it. But I think there's also this beautiful example and model for us as his followers. To live on mission, to do the will of God, to do the will of the Father, to accomplish his work. It's of greater satisfaction and sustenance than your job, than your family, than our vacations, than our retirement, than our whatever. To do the will of God and to accomplish his work greater sustenance, greater satisfaction than anything our hands could find to do. Do you believe it? Do you understand it? Do you feel it in your soul? See, the world would say, my food, the thing that fills me and satisfies me is to do what I want, to do my will. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to act. My food, the thing that fills me and satisfies me, is to do whatever I want. My freedom is everything. Don't tell me what to do. And it's to accomplish my work, to accomplish my ambitions, to accomplish my life goals. We need to take all of that and bring it to the feet of Jesus. 
You see, in the new birth, there is a laying down of everything. In the new birth, there's a reorientation, right? John the Baptist declared to the increase of him and the decrease of me. And it seems to me that when Jesus says, man cannot live on bread alone, but by the words of God, Jesus is saying that his food is to do the will of the Father. Kind of, they, they kind of go hand in hand when you see and hear the testimony of Christ revealed in the scriptures. When you behold him and see that he is the surpassing worth. And to do his will, to do his work, when those two things come together, you want to share that, you want to sow that gospel, you want to see souls saved in the harvest, it satisfies and fills. And you enjoy it like a good, fine food or fine wine. I've always thought it kind of weird that when Jesus calls the disciples, when he calls the disciples to himself, he's not, hey, come follow me and I'm going to save your soul. Come follow me and I'm going to um, pay for all of your sins and redeem you and I'm going to be the sacrifice that, that, that you need for your salvation. He says, come follow me and I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. The call to Christ was so tied to a call to mission. The call to, when he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. These were fishermen that he was calling, right? He's using this beautiful picture. And fishermen, they caught fish. It was their livelihood. They probably ate, partook of their um, craft often. It was probably one of the most prominent things they ate was fish. And Jesus saying, follow me. You're not going to catch fish anymore. There's going to be a harvest of souls. There's going to be a harvest of men. See, food points to the necessity of sustenance for our souls. It's very primal, right? Doing the will of God, the sustaining nature of a caloric intake, right? It sustains us, it keeps us going, it fuels us. My wife and I have been watching a show. My wife is really into it. These survival shows, you guys ever watch these survival shows? It's a show called Alone, and these people get dropped off by themselves. You guys watch it? There's a lot of nodding. You guys are into the show. This is cool. Or maybe we should text each other while we watch it. That's what we do, right? But, like, these people are eating some crazy things. I, we were watching one of, the, one of the seasons. They're eating banana slugs. Like, one guy, was, they found these giant snails, and they were cooking these snails in the shells, and it's just oozy and, it's like, snot. Like... But they just need sustenance. They just need calories. They just need something in their belly. And food serves that purpose definitely. It definitely does. But how many of you know that there is an enjoyment to food as well? Right? Especially in our context. Right? We enjoy a good meal. Right? A good steak, seafood, lobster, ribs, Oh, man, my mouth is full of spit. <laughs> right? There's an enjoyment to food, right? And, and actually, there's, there's a reflective nature there. When you understand that everything comes from God, like in that moment, when you're enjoying a good meal, you can say, thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. So both, on both fronts, right? The sustaining 
element of food, caloric intake, keeps me going, mo- like moving, energized. My body needs it. And also, man, I can delight in it. There's some satisfaction there of a good meal. On both fronts, doing the will of the Father, sowing the gospel, reaping a harvest of souls, gathering fruit for eternal life, as our text says, should be our delight. It should be our delight, and it should be our delight because we delight in Christ. So the next time you sit down to an amazing meal, you're sitting there with that steak, and it just melts in your mouth. Lobster, ribs, tacos, McRib, whatever's your jam. I want you to remember the delight and satisfaction in doing God's will and sharing his gospel. And I want you to be filled. See, if you're struggling to do this, if you're struggling to do his will, if you're struggling to engage missionally within the context that you've been placed, first and foremost, I would encourage you to delight in Christ. Okay, you're not going to delight in doing his will unless you first just simply delight in him. And that's why I think when Jesus says, like, man can't live by bread alone, but on the very words of God, I think there's something beautiful in that. When you delight in Christ, when you behold him, and you do that largely by sitting in his presence in prayer, but sitting in his presence with the scriptures in him revealed. When you, you're not going to see him unless you see him in scripture, who he is. Otherwise, we can get off and like make up these versions of Jesus that aren't Jesus. Right? I've, I've, had, I've been in debates with people and they're like, and I'm like, like confronting them with the God of the Bible and they're like, well, the God I serve wouldn't do that. And I'm going, I don't know if you're serving the God of the Bible because it says that he does it, right? We don't want to make up some version of Jesus that's not in scripture, so we have to behold and delight in scripture. So first off, if you're struggling to find delight and joy in being missional, in sharing the gospel, in scattering seed, in receiving a harvest, delight in Christ, which means delight in his word. Spend time in his presence. Behold him and let him fill you with that awe and that gratitude. Understand, like like I said a couple weeks ago, we are the woman at the well. I don't care what your story is. We are broken, we are lost, we are uh, idolatrous and adulterous. Like we are so full of wandering. And God met you, he pursued you, he came to you, exposes you plainly, and yet receives you. No longer a child of wrath, but a child of God. What a beautiful thing. Delight in that. Read the scriptures and delight in that beautiful, amazing grace story. The other thing that I would say, first, delight in Christ, but second, jump in. Do it. Just start scattering seed and sharing the gospel. There's always like this thing like, oh, how do I start? How do I do? Like, sometimes you just got to jump in. Sometimes you just got to do it. You've been saved. If you've been redeemed, if you've been called of Christ, if you've been washed of your sin, you've, you've been all that, not just for yourself. 
It's for the glory of Jesus, right? A lot of times we're like, hey, prayed the prayer, I'm done. No, it's just starting. Now your life is all about the glory of Christ, declaring that amazing grace, declaring the glory of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom. You've been reconciled back to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, but you've also then been given that ministry of reconciliation, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And I've said it before, and the, the gospel, when you're saved, the gospel becomes paramount. It becomes everything. And then everything else is context or idolatry. You've probably heard me say that before, right? The gospel is paramount. Everything else is context for the gospel. It's where God has placed you in this life, in this particular time, for his glory, to share the gospel or all that other stuff becomes idolatry and gets in the way of the gospel. God has placed you in your context, your family structure with your crazy aunts and uncles, your family structure with that grandma and grandpa that, you know, never mind. (laughs) To share the gospel. He's placed you in your workplace to scatter seed and to see a harvest. We delight in Jesus and we engage in the mission. Just do it. Go for it. I'll tell you guys a story real quick. Um, My freshman year of Bible school, so this is way back in 1995, just uh, dating myself a little bit, yes. Um, I went to Bible school. Actually, I, I, I sensed the call of God on my life through high school, uh, probably my sophomore year of high school, and I avoided it for almost three years. I didn't embrace it until my senior year of high school. Um, and so, and part of it was my dad wasn't saved at the time. My dad, when he passed last year, he knew Jesus. It was like glorious, glorious day. I'm so glad he's home in the arms of Jesus. But part of my wrestle with it is he wasn't saved at the time, and I didn't think he would understand. Like my dad, I wanted to be an architect, and my dad was really proud of that. He really wanted me to pursue that. And I actually, I, I did all the classes in high school. I landed this awesome job down at this huge company down, uh, down in uh, Racine. And um, he was really proud of where I was going. And one day I just had to, like, Dad, Jesus called me. And uh, I think I'm going to be a pastor. And it was so great because, like I said, at that moment, he didn't know Christ. He didn't receive him as his Savior. And he says, son, I don't care. He said, I just want, my dad worked in a foundry for 44 years, all of his life. He's like, I just want you to do something where you don't have to get your hands dirty. And so it was pretty sweet. Anyways, freshman year of Bible school. I get to Bible school. I'm an 18-year-old kid. I'm squirrely as heck, okay? And I just like, most 18-year-old kids, they are, but I think I was exceptionally squirrely. And it's like, I wasn't like out partying or doing drugs or like drinking or any of that stuff. But man, I just loved the college. Like it was like friends and girls and let's hang out like all the time. And so like I didn't engage in ministry. I didn't have a home church. I didn't whatever. I was just like sneaking by with B's and C's and just having a good old time. By the end of my freshman year, I had no idea what God wanted me to do with my life. I was so convinced 
one year previous that I was able to boldly tell my dad, hey, dad, I don't think you're going to understand this, but God has called me to be a pastor. One year later, all absorbed in me, all absorbed in my life and whatever and having fun and living for me, and in one year time, I doubted God's calling on my life. Summer came, went back home, came back here to Milwaukee. It was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Maybe I should go to pursue architecture again or something. God's grace, I went back for my second year Bible school up in Minneapolis. Three weeks in, I was dating a girl. She took me to this church. It was a church plant, walked in the doors, met a guy named Tommy Orlando. He's like, hey, church plant, meeting in a school, setting up and tearing down. We need help. You want to help? Sure, I'll help. Start setting up, tearing down. Hey, we need help in the youth group. You want to help us out in the youth group? Sure, I'll help. Start helping out. Now I'm engaged in lives. I'm engaged in these teenagers' lives, and, and, and I start immersing myself into ministry. And I'm seeing the brokenness, like divorced homes left and right, kids in self-destructive behaviors, kids that are cutting themselves and whatever, and I'm watching the seeds of the gospel be scattered over their lives. And I'm watching the Holy Spirit do things that only the Holy Spirit of God can do. Miracles are happening in the hearts and lives of these teenagers. All of a sudden, my passion's back. My calling is back. I'm seeing the hand of God move in the hearts and lives of these teenagers. And I know for certain that my life was made for ministry. There's a thing that we can grow complacent. There's a thing where we can grow weary and it just, be, like tasks stink. Just doing things, it, it stinks. And ministry, and you can get caught up in it in ministry all the time. But man, it was so crazy how my passion came back. My eyes were open and I could see that the fields were white, that they were ripe and ready for harvest in the lives of these teenagers that God had placed me in. And God graciously let me be a part of it. I saw and beheld Jesus. I delighted in him and I delighted in doing his work. And it tasted so, so sweet that I couldn't do anything else with my life. It was the most fulfilling bite of food I'd ever had. My calling was confirmed, and I haven't looked back. I would encourage you, if you're struggling, if you're struggling with just even feeling like fulfilled, you think that you're like you're feeling complacent and you're feeling stagnant in your walk with Christ. Delight in Him and delight in His mission. Put your boots on. Put your flannel shirt on. Put your overalls on. Grab some seed and start scattering. Grab a sickle. Start harvesting. Verse, 30, uh, verse 35 of our text, it says, Do not say, there are yet four months. Wait, do you not say, excuse me, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and uh, gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. We hear the the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. That phrase there, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Has anyone ever worked on a farm? More hands than I thought. That's awesome. That's really great. My first job was, in a, was at a farm. Um, I was 15 years old. There was a cabbage farm not too far from our house. My mom would drive me there and drop me off, and I would work. And it was, there was two really, really busy times of the year, planting and harvesting, right? This phrase that you hear, um, four months, right? In between the planting and the harvesting, there's roughly about four months. And in those four months, you're kind of just waiting on things to grow. You might do some weeding, some hoeing, some, you know, some of that stuff. But the busy, busy times are the planting and the harvesting. David Gutzig points this out, uh, that this was a, a phrase as a way of saying, we've got some time in a nonchalant way. Well, there's time. There's plenty of time until the harvest. You would plant and sow, and once the seed was in the ground, there was a lot of waiting around. Like I said, maybe you do a little weeding here and there, but not nearly as intensive as planting and sowing. And many of you are just waiting around. You think there's time. You've got the notion that there's a ton of time left. There's no sense of urgency to our calling. Just a lot of waiting around for Jesus to come back. There's one thing that this last year, what 2020 has taught me, is that there's not a lot of time. I mentioned it before, when I lost my dad suddenly, right before the pandemic kind of shut everything down, it shook me in a way, and it made me realize there's not enough time. There's, like, because you don't know. You just have no clue. In a moment, you can get a phone call from your mom, and things could change. The blessing, there's been a huge blessing in 2020. I've mentioned it before as well. The world has hoped in a lot of things, whether it be economics or politicians or whatever. And the beautiful thing about 2020 and the pandemic and the crazy election that happened and all this stuff is that it shook people down to their core. So we need to open up our eyes and see that the field is white for harvest. We need to get ready. We need to sow. We need to reap. We need to take a bite of the Father's will. Take a bite of the Father's work and see and taste the fruit of eternal life. As Jesus says those words, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white with harvest. I could just imagine as he's saying that, right? The people are pouring out of the town. They're pouring out of Samaria to come out to see a man who told this woman everything she ever did. They could probably see a crowd kind of rolling over the hill slowly. Jesus talking to his disciples, he's like, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white with harvest. The scandalous woman who experienced Jesus, do you notice what she did? She immediately started scattering seeds. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. It's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes. It's time 
Church, it's time. Open your eyes. Like I said, put on your flannel shirt, put on your overalls, put on your boots, grab some seed, and let's get to work. Let's take a bite and see the spiritual food that Jesus describes to do the will of the one who called us and saved us. I texted Dan yesterday. I said, I think it's interesting that this passage fell in the day that Marty was supposed to be here. God touched Milwaukee where we're going to like do like this concerted outreach effort to go reach hurting and broken people with the gospel of Jesus. I think it's really interesting that it fell on today. But I want you to open your eyes to your house and see the harvest that's in your home. Open your eyes to your workplace. Open your eyes to your school. Open your eyes in your neighborhood. The harvest is ready. The harvest is plentiful. Matthew chapter 9 says that the workers are few. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he, compa- he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, I've been praying. I've been praying that the Lord would send workers into the field. I bet Marty has been praying. I bet Chris and Jeff, I bet Dan, I bet Albin has been praying. Let's go and find fulfillment and sustenance and delight in joining in the harvest of Jesus Christ. As the band comes and we go to a time of worship again, I hope there's been a challenge in this for you today because there's been a challenge in it for me. There's a, there's a prayer that I've been praying a lot this last year. Um, I want to be more missional in my daily living. And it might sound like a really weird thing to say as a pastor, but there's a lot of security and comfort with this thing right here in front of me. I can say a lot of bold things when I'm standing behind this thing. When I get out in a coffee shop, and I'm interacting with the baristas, talking to my neighbors across the street, I'm just like you, terrified. What are they going to think? Ah, ah, and I hold in my hands and in my heart the most beautiful thing. I've received something from Jesus Christ that the world longs for. I have delighted in him And I still struggle just like you guys do. But as I read this text, I just want my eyes open. And I want to be impassioned and bold to share in the beauty of planting, sowing, reaping to the glory of Christ Jesus. That's why you exist. I can't say it any more plainly than that. You don't exist to make money. You don't exist to make kids. It's just context. God gave you those beautiful children to scatter the seeds of the gospel over. It's time to go. It's time to work. 
Time to put our boots on. I'm excited for what God's going to do. Not just for our church, for his kingdom, for his glory. As we worship, respond. I have a feeling there's probably a lot of repenting that needs to happen in this room. There's a lot of challenge to it. Do it. Also, pray for a heart and a life that you know needs Jesus. Pray for the lost. And I look forward to a harvest. The harvest is ready. The harvest is ready. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. God, I know that we've tasted and seen that you are good, that you are amazing, that you are life, that you are the bread of life. God, I pray that we would do your will, that we would accomplish your work. God, that we would stop being complacent, that we would stop being lazy, that we would stop being afraid. God, that you who've called us, God, you are faithful. You who've called us, God, will equip us. You who called us will give us the words to say. God, I just pray that you would change us, that you would open our eyes to see the harvest. God, that you would embolden us and impassion us. God, to sow seeds of the gospel, to see a harvest of fruit to eternal life. God, we thank you for this glorious call in you, that we are your church. And so God, expand your kingdom. Use us to the glory of Christ, to draw men and women to yourself, that they too might taste and see that you are good. We love you, God. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together and keep responding to the Holy Spirit today.